that there is one God, and in that unity there are three co-eternal and co-equal persons, same in essence, yet distinct in necessary existence and function. Hello, hello, welcome back. Welcome to the No Greater Joy podcast, brought to you by the pastors here at Grace Baptist Church, because we want for our people what Jesus wants for his people, and that's to know greater joy by stepping into the areas that bring no greater joy for God's people, and that's being a 24-7 worshiper, a go person, and an alongsider. I am Pastor Steve Strong, lead pastor here at Grace, and fighting alongside me right across the table is... Associate Pastor Ryan Atkins. Ryan Atkins. Good man that he is, and a huge thanks once again to our tech guru, Dan Kraniak, a member here at Grace, producer of this podcast, and uh, appreciate all his hard work and letting this become a reality. So, Thanks, Dan. Yep. Way to go. A for the day. All right. Um, we have been in a series of episodes looking at the doctrine of theology proper, looking, which is the study of God. I guess we could put it most succinctly. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've been talking about his attributes. We've really been kind of answering the question, what is God like? And we're going to keep answering that question. But this episode, we want to answer that question by saying that God is a trinity. And so, Ryan, what, yes. is, what would be a simple definition of the trinity? One God, three persons. Three persons. Very good. Period. You're on your way to being ordained. You're right. right there, close. That's right. So that was Any other questions? <clears throat> no? We're good. All right. All right. <laughs> so uh, the Trinity is notoriously difficult as well as controversial amongst world religions. Um, and so Christians, we have tried all kinds of different ways to illustrate the Trinity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, we thought we would start with some of those analogies. And I think right up front, we'll just tell you they all fall short. Yeah. But uh, what are some of your favorite analogies of the Trinity? It's the egg. The egg? Where you have the shell, the yolk, the white, three parts, one egg. Yeah, but the shell. The shell is not (laughs) the yolk. The yolk is not the white. White. Yeah. Yeah. So you have, like, we like that because, okay, there's one egg, but there's three parts to the egg. Um Four-leaf clover would mm-hmm. be a similar one, um, but again, it's parts, and not all of the parts alone make up and meet all the qualifications of a four-leaf clover, or even like a yolk by itself isn't an egg. It's just a part of an egg. Um, any others that you like? I mean, there's always the math, like one times one times one equals one. Yeah, all right. But... It's not the same. Like it, yeah, just no. Yeah. <laughs> I think um, another, I think it also helpful, but not sometimes, is I, Steve Strong, I'm one person, but I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm a son, and we could go even more. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have like one person, but that's more one person in multiple functions. Yeah, It's roles. not like... Like, there's one essence of Steve, but different person. I'm a different person as a father, a different person as a <laughs> husband. Um, so that kind of falls short. Yeah. Any others that you like? Uh, last one kind of on our list this morning is the Cerberus. Yeah. You know, the, just thinking of 
uh, Hades, three-headed dog, um, you know, the three different heads, but still one dog. Yeah, not exactly. Well, it takes a mythical fi- uh, mythical character to try to <laughs> illustrate what really kind of – we don't have anything in the created world no. that's going to be an adequate um, illustration of what the And, and it is. also falls short because if you remember the, the Disney animated musical Hercules, Cerberus is conquered by Hercules and he rides into Hades – presence on well no one's conquering god so no another way it falls short thanks disney well and i think and and probably god has created the world in such a way that doesn't illustrate because when we talked about his holiness he's Mm -hmm. transcendent holy other and so this is one of those qualities of who he is that kind of that illustrates that and maintains that so so we had mentioned as we were starting this before we got into the analogies, that this is is one of these doctrines that really is unique to Christianity. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Why don't you just maybe speak to that a little bit? How is this the case? Yeah. So you have other theistic, monotheistic religions like Judaism, Islam, uh, but none of those see this idea of a trinity, like this specific doctrine functioning within those religions um, we don't find the word Trinity in Scripture, um, but when you, if you're if you're just aware as you're reading through the word, you see it coming out um, in multiple places, and we'll get to that here in a few minutes. Um, but it's it's a crucial doctrine for our faith in that it deals with some really important uh, and addresses some really important kind of questions that come up when you think about like the atonement. And so if, if Jesus were merely a human and not God, how could he bear the full wrath of God? Um, in our justification, it's by faith alone um, becomes this dubious idea. Like if Jesus isn't fully God, then can we actually completely trust him to save us? Like, is he trustworthy? Yeah. If he's just a human being, you know, yeah, it gets real. Some gets gets right a little here. dicey. Yep. Um, in our worship, if Jesus isn't God, then should we pray to and worship Him? Um, is He again worthy? Uh, is it possible for Him to hear all prayers and respond? Well, not if He's not God. Mm-hmm. Um, for, you know, when we think about glory, uh, if Jesus was just merely created and did save, credit for, for salvation then goes to the man Jesus and not to God. And so we become sinners in that we're worshiping and exalting a creature and not God himself, which is explicitly forbidden in the scripture. Yeah. And then we it undermines the nature of God if we don't have kind of the trinity in place where that God is self-sufficient, all-loving, um, and the highest expression of this love is to give of oneself, which God did through his son. And so if God were not a trinity, then he would have no one to love and he would then therefore need created beings which would relegate him to not being self-sufficient in his own. Yep. And so it just each of these areas kind of, um, like I said, gets a little dicey when you try and remove the Trinity from. Sure. You know, all of those things kind of prop up the importance of what the Bible is teaching us when it mm-hmm. comes to the Trinity. And it's as difficult to try to wrap our minds around as it is crucial to kind of what you were saying um, 
And through the course of early church history, there have been a number of, I guess we could call call them heresies. And each of them, and I'll just mention them here in a second, but each of these heresies in trying to wrap minds around the Bible's teaching with this, usually, um, and it all kind of began in the early church with just the New Testament authors that are teaching about Jesus, because it is it is just a clear teaching that Jesus, the incarnation, he is truly human <clears throat> for quite the reasons that you just talked about, atonement, justification, etc. But he's also undiminished deity. There's clarity. We'll touch on that here in a minute. And so the early church or church fathers are wrestling with truly understanding Christology, who Jesus is, the fact of what the incarnation, you have one person, two natures. So you have that. And as they're wrapping their mind around that, you have now the teaching of the Old Testament that God is one. But now here's Jesus who's claiming deity. How do all these things fit together? And and, and so you're going to have certain people and their disciples. They're emphasizing the humanity of Christ. They're emphasizing the deity of Christ. And you have this pendulum going back and forth. And um, and this was a huge point of emphasis in the early church. And and out of it came a lot of different heresies that creep up in even today. But um, you know, the first of all, the first one would be just Arianism, which is early on, fourth century, denying the deity of Christ, and so recognizing and really emphasizing Jesus's humanity at the expense of his deity. And so they're going to say that he was created, but he was created with divine attributes. He wasn't always existent. You have a little bit later in church history, so Sinianism, um, where it just emphasizes the the oneness of God. God is a single person. The Holy Spirit is just the power out of that person. Uh, they're going to deny the deity of Christ as well as his preexistence. Jesus was just simply a man. He was a good man. They would even say that he was a deified man, but he was not a sufficient sacrificial substitute. He was just a good example. And even that teaching is we're seeing kind of creep back into um, quote unquote Christianity. Yep. In that a substitutionary atonement is not what Jesus accomplished. Um, but anyway, and then a couple more deism that again you just have one God who created and totally distanced himself from creation. He's not interfering in a deist. They're going to deny any kind of supernatural miracles, which would include Jesus being, you know, the virgin birth uh, and being one person, two natures. And so Jesus was just simply a historical figure. The most probably well-known and commonly understood heresy when it comes to the Trinity is the idea of modalism. And this is early, early on in our church history. And... It is going to emphasize the oneness of God, and but God makes him known, makes himself known and manifests himself in different modes, in different ways. So in the Old Testament, he was a father; he was a God above and beyond. In the in the New Testament, he made he manifested himself in Jesus, and today he's making himself known as a Holy Spirit, and so. Um, not three persons, one God, three different 
modes in three different forms. And so what's important for us is in thinking through all of these things is and, and, and the tendency toward those kind of errors and heresies and wrong thinkings is taking and emphasizing one verse, one passage over all the others. And this is really our task really is to take the comprehensive teaching of the Bible. And what does the Bible teach about God from Genesis to Revelation? And a little caveat here, at Grace, that's why we're going to preach the entirety of the Word of God. We're not yeah. just going to dwell on the Old Testament. Yeah. If you do that, you're limiting your understanding of who God is. Mm-hmm. You can't say, oh, it's no value to us. Well, that's absolutely false. If you do that, you are opening the door to a wrong, insufficient thinking of who God is. Mm-hmm. So you take the entirety of Scripture, the comprehensive teaching of Scripture, and you accumulate all that information. What does that teach us about God? We can't. We have to resist the urge to just land and emphasize a single verse here, a single verse or a passage. Um, and so, and on, so that's one kind of big takeaway I think as we look at the doctrine of the Trinity, because the Bible is not going to use the word Trinity. Mm-hmm. I think it was Tertullius early on in church history that used it or introduced it, and we've just kind of held on to it. Um, But the comprehensive teaching of the Bible teaches the truth of the Trinity, and it's not something that our minds easily can just wrap around. And Mm -hmm. so we have a question, you know, am I going to take my finite mind and understanding and have that sit as judge over Scripture, or am I going to take the teaching of Scripture and allow that to trump and take authority over my finite understanding? And the answer, of course, is I may not fully comprehend, but I will acknowledge and adhere and submit to the teaching of Scripture in its comprehensive um, production of an introduction to who Mm -hmm. God is, and he's he's a trinity. So, So when it comes to the teaching of Scripture, I guess when we think about who God is as trinity... Um, there's really three kind of, if you were to summarize it, three main points or teaching. And what's the first one? Yeah. So the first one is that God is one. Yes. So there is one God, only one God. Um, and so you have passages like Exodus 20, where you, uh, have Moses documenting God saying, I am the Lord, your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Deuteronomy 6, uh, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, which Jesus then quotes and affirms uh, its truthfulness in Math- and, sorry, Mark 12 uh, when he's answering and says the most important uh, is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, like directly quoting uh, Deuteronomy 6 there. Even in Romans 3, as Paul is laying out this, you know, he's building this argument mm-hmm. um, for our need of the gospel. And uh, he says, or is, or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. And so we just see this both Old Testament and New. There's just this continuing um, thought and uh, expression that God is one simple God. He is... Uh, he is himself. Yeah. yeah, and that Deuteronomy passage, um, 
the Lord our God, the Lord is the God, or He's one, was like that was a, a central teaching yep. for the Israelite people. And it's pretty significant that Jesus is mm-hmm. quoting that and He's maintaining that. Um, but we also see the second point is that the first one is that there is one God. The second point is that there's plurality in the in the Godhead. Um, and the Old Testament opens the door. It kind of establishes a threshold into that. It's not super clear, like, okay, there's three. Mm-hmm. But the Old Testament does introduce that there is a plurality within that oneness of God. So, for instance, um, of course, you have Genesis number of different times. What does God say? Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And I think that second <clears throat> idea of our likeness is really important. Um, and then in chapter 3, the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Um, and then at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, Come, let us go down and confuse our languages. And the Lord dispersed them. And that verb there is a plural verb. Um and then Isaiah. So you have the beginning of Genesis, at the, the beginning of all time, you have this idea, this sense of, all right, he's using plural um, references here. And then when God is calling Isaiah, the voice of the Lord says, who shall I send? Who will go for us? And then, of course, Isaiah says, here I am. Send me. Um, and it really... When we get to the New Testament, we see, and of course, some of the Psalms that David is writing, you know, kind of hint at it, and I think Hebrews draws that out. Um, but the Old Testament is more an, an intro, a, a hinting, and it's the New Testament that really clarifies that in that plurality, we're talking persons. There's mm-hmm. three persons. And so the first is, of course, God the Father. Uh, Matthew chapter 6, your heavenly Father feeds them. And then talking about the birds of the air, and then later on in that passage, in God clothes the grass of the field, same idea, our Heavenly Father is God. Romans 1, to all those who are in Rome, loved by God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father. 1 Corinthians 8, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom all things exist, for whom we exist. Um, And so you have God the Father, the second person, you have God the Son. John 1 just starts off, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Thomas in John chapter 20, after the resurrection, sees Jesus and he answers, my Lord, my God. And so he recognizes Jesus, Mm -hmm. calls him my Lord, my God. And how does Jesus respond? He doesn't tell him, no, 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 don't call me that. He accepts that. uh, what else could I say? He, and then Hebrews chapter 1, But of the Son, the Father, says of the Son, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. And so, <clears throat> you know, when we start going over Christology, we'll hit this a little bit harder. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we also see the teaching of the Holy Spirit being God. I think one of the great passages illustrating that is in Acts chapter 5, when Ananias and Sapphira are lying mm. about the money that they're giving, um, and in confronting them, 
um, Peter tells Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then later on, he's like, when you've contrived this deed and you've not lied to man, but you have lied to God. So he's equating the Holy Spirit with God there. Um, <clears throat> and then John chapter 1, uh, a couple places, um, who were born not of blood people, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but you're born of God. And then a chapter, a couple chapters later, so it is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And so you have this um, equation, I guess, if you will, just this um, marking out the Holy Spirit as God himself. So you have the Old Testament setting the stage, the New, class, New Testament really clarifying that this plurality is limited to three persons, the Father, the Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. But there's a third there's the oneness of God, the plurality of that oneness in three persons, and then the third teaching is... That they're equally one God. Yes. And this too kind of flows what was shown in the Old Testament, revealed more clearly in the New Testament. You know, all these passages we have, um, you know, think of the Great Commission in Matthew 28, and Jesus tells his disciples to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name singular of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You know, there's equality in that name uh, of all three persons. Uh, Romans 15, you have Paul writing, I appeal to you, brothers, <clears throat> excuse me, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Again, each individual or each person of the, the Godhead is involved uh, equally there. 1 Corinthians 12, uh, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit uh, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Second Thessalonians two, but we ought not, or we ought always, not ought not, ought <laughs> always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. You have these just repeated passages where you see all three persons present. Uh, and equally recognized as God. Yeah, so as we, you know, we kind of summed in a simple definition, the Trinity, one God, three persons, taking now the teaching of Scripture, trying to, all right, I think we could fill that out a little bit in trying to mm -hmm. define the Trinity. And I, and I think we would put it this way, that there is one God, and in that unity, there are three co-eternal and co-equal persons, same in essence, yet distinct in necessary existence and function. So I'll read that again. The, the comprehensive teaching of Scripture and who God is and what he is like is that there is one God, and in that unity, in that one God, there are three co-eternal and co-equal persons. They are same in essence, and when we mean essence there, we're talking about everything that makes up what a divine being is, you know? So all the qualities and attributes that we mm -hmm. talked about in the first couple episodes, that's essence. So all three are same in essence, <clears throat> yet they are distinct from each other in necessary existence and function. And so there are three distinct persons the three distinct wills, emotions, um, personalities, persons, 
yet one essence, and they're also distinct from each other in function. And so that kind of leads to um, kind of the last maybe point that we want to draw out is that you have these three persons um, and they're distinct and they're distinct in function. There's an interesting series of things uh, of just sayings that Jesus has in John in John, John chapter 10, Jesus in talking to the Pharisees and religious leaders who are opposing him, he kind of kind of provokes them on in speaking some truth and he says, "I and the Father are one." Mm-hmm. Um, and then just a few chapters later, John records and he's talking about uh, Jesus going to the cross. And Jesus says, the Father is greater than I. And so out of Jesus' mouth, you have these two statements. I and the Father are one. All right? So you have these two persons, one essence. They're one. They're equal. But then a little bit later, in talking with the disciples, he's like, the Father is greater than I. So how do we kind of reconcile those things? Um, and, and I think it's helpful then to understand there's two kinds of, there's two relationships that the three persons have within the Godhead. Uh, the first one is what we would call the ontological relationship within the Trinity. And that's the, and that's what Jesus was talking about when he says, I and the Father are one. So there is each person shares the glory and the fellowship within the relationship um, apart from their interaction with cre- with creation. There is equality. There's one in essence. One is not more God or less God than the others. They are equal in essence. Um, and this is illustrated, and I, and I think on, I think strategically at the very beginning, Adam and Eve, God creates Adam and Eve, man and woman, and he's, they'll leave the father and mother. They will cling to each other. And he says they will become one flesh. So if there is any illustration of plurality and oneness in our world, it is in marriage, where two become one. And you have two distinct persons, but he uses the language of one flesh. And so really that heightens the sacredness of our marriages and yeah. the um and really the importance of what our relationship for us with our wives and wives with their husbands for our people at our church your relationship is a direct picture mm-hmm. of our god it's a living testimony that's right and so that's that ontological, and, and every husband and wife has an ontological relationship where they are equals. The husband's not better than the wife. The wife isn't better than the husband. And each one, either one, isn't less. It's there's an equal in essence. Both image bearers of God, mm-hmm. both same worth in God's mind. But there's also an um, what we would call an economic relationship in the sense of there are different roles. In the Godhead. So that's when Jesus is saying, the Father is greater than I. That's why Jesus there in the Garden of Gethsemane says, 
not my will, but yours. Here's Jesus recognizing two persons. Jesus has a will. God the Father has a will. And Jesus submits himself to the will of the Father, which takes him to the cross. Jesus also says, I willingly give myself up. Yeah, right? So you have two wills, and you have Jesus submitting himself to the will of the Father. And the Holy Spirit, in turn, is sent out by Jesus and the Father into the world. And the Holy Spirit is the one who is revealing the words and the truths of Jesus. He's, he's magnifying Jesus. He's crying out, Abba, Father, to our spirits. He's witnessing to our spirits and testifying to them. All right, And so the Holy Spirit is in submission to Jesus Christ and God the Father, yet in the giving of the spiritual gifts in, in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, it's the Holy Spirit who is, according to his will, disseminating the spiritual gifts. All right, and so you have this role and function within the Godhead where Jesus submits to the will of the Father and in such a way says, the Father is greater than I. Mm -hmm. And that also we see that functioning within marriages, within church life, mm -hmm. where, and, and Scripture is going to use the words headship. And so the husband is the head of the home, just as Christ is the head of the church, and there are that's why we would fall more to a complementarian understanding of marriage and church leadership. Mm -hmm. um, it's that does not speak to essence; it speaks to function and role. And we see that in the Godhead, and in the Godhead, spilling over now illustrated in marriages and in the life of the church. So you can have Jesus saying, "I and the Father are one." They're one in essence. That's an ontological statement. But then later on saying, well, the Father is greater than I. I submit to his will, your will, not my will. It doesn't mean that his will is any less divine than God the Father's. But there's an economic relationship, and there's a function, and there's a role, and he submits to the Father. So, um so that's this relationship. And it's in, in misunderstanding that if you only take, well, the Father is greater than I, yeah. you're going to go off in a heretical direction. Yes. And so that's why we take the, the comprehensive nature of Scripture and take all of what it says, formulate our doctrine. Yeah, you have so, to. Yep. So it's, uh, it's not, a, not an easy thing to wrap our minds around. But once again, we fall down. Mm -hmm. And um, allow us to be in awe and in wonder, mm -hmm. and uh, and we can praise God for that. Yep, absolutely. Anything else you want to add? No, I, I, I'm taking notes. All right, <laughs> amen and amen. And uh, if there, if it generates questions, send them our way. Yeah, come see us. All right. Well, let's let's call it a wrap, and we'll take up the plan of God in the next episode. All right. God bless. Talk to you later.